I have both the great fortune and the great misfortune of being in First Parish's pulpit this morning. I have the great fortune because this has been a historic week in which we have seen the arc of the moral universe bend more than slightly towards justice. The Supreme Court voted to legalize gay marriage throughout the country. In an instant, gay marriage went from being legal in some states to being legal in all states. And we here at First Parish, have a, First Parish have a right to feel both joyful and proud of this moment. We should feel joyful because our cherished belief that society must recognize the inherent worth and dignity of all people has come more than a step closer to being a reality. We should feel proud because this congregation has been a pioneer in the struggle for gay marriage not for years, but for decades. More than 10 years ago, congregants Susan Shepherd and Marsha Hams were the first lesbian couple in the state of Massachusetts. The first lesbian couple in the United States. to obtain a marriage license after this state legalized gay marriage. Their marriage was issued by the then Cambridge city clerk, Margaret Drury, <laughs> who is also a member of our congregation. <laughs> the legalization of gay marriage is not the only thing we have to celebrate this morning. The horrific terrorist attack on Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, has prompted states across the South to reconsider the display of Confederate flags. The symbol of white supremacy may finally be consigned to the museum. Elsewhere in the South, serious conversations are taking place about what it means to have streets named after the white slaveholders who rose up in arms against the federal government to preserve slavery. What does it mean that in the state of Tennessee there are more than 30 public monuments to the slave trader, Confederate general, and leader of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Forrester? What does it mean that there is not one public monument to the first South Carolina volunteer infantry that was the first African-American regiment in the Union Army. The victory of gay marriage and the seriousness about the significance of the symbols of the Confederacy prompted one of my Facebook friends to observe, it's a really horrible week to be a racist homophobe. And so I have the great privilege of being with you this celebratory Sunday when we find ourselves at one of those inflection points in history. I also have the misfortune of being with you the Sunday after our senior minister has announced his resignation. 
If you're anything like me, I imagine that most of you were shocked by Fred's decision. Someone told me that when they first heard that Fred was resigning, they thought it was an April Fool's joke. And so I know that there is a lot of confusion and a lot of questions out there this morning about what is going to happen next. I know that our standing committee and and Sue Phillips, the district executive of our Massachusetts Bay Unitarian Universalist Association, and Fred will all be working together to ensure a smooth transition. I'm confident that there will be an interim minister here to start sometime in the fall. But more than that is the fact that our work as a congregation will continue even without Fred. Our work on racial justice and our growth as a multiracial and multicultural community will continue. Our work fighting climate change will continue. Our work on rights for the GLBTQI community will continue. All of the important social service work that takes place in our buildings will continue. I joined this congregation because its vision is bigger than any of its ministers. Fred has been an important part of that vision, and he's carried a lot of it. We should mourn his departure, but we should be confident that our work together as a congregation will continue. In the spirit of continuing, let me now turn to the text for this morning's service. It comes from Martin King. It is a phrase he said often and included in his last sermon, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. He delivered it March 31st, 1968 at the National Cathedral. It was the last Sunday morning sermon he ever gave. On that last Sunday of his life, King warned us that we as a human species have two choices. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. Forty-seven years after King's assassination, we are still stuck with those two choices. This is a celebratory Sunday, and on a morning like this, we can almost imagine ourselves on the mountaintop with King, gazing out towards the promised land. But if we are honest, we will admit that the promised land still lies off in the hazy distance. We are very much at risk of perishing together as fools. We may stand in a moment of national grace, but we as a human species are on the brink of an existential crisis. If we cannot use this week's miraculous moments to help us put aside our petty, willful, self-blinding differences, then there will be little hope for future generations. We have to learn to finally unite across race, across class, across sexual orientation, and every other human divisor that confronts us. We have to confront the fact that we are ruining the planet, and with it, our very species' long-term chances of survival. Now, I could provide you with a litany of data to back up this assertion. I could talk about the gathering terror of climate change. I could mention the frightening rate that animal species are going extinct, that the polar ice caps are melting, that the sea level is rising, 
that fresh water is becoming an ever scarcer resource, that the forests are shrinking. I could mention that these patterns are accelerating, but we are a conscientious congregation. I suspect that you know all that already. So here is the question that we are confronted with. How can we learn to unite so that we can overcome the human-created threat of extinction? This is fundamentally a religious question. It has to do with what binds us together. Are we humans more united by petty spite or by the crisis that threatens our continued existence as a species on this planet? What must we do to recognize, as the great Unitarian preacher William L. Chanin described us, that we are all members of the great family of all souls? Now, I could pretend that I have precise answers to these questions. I do not. I struggle with them mightily. This week, there, I was reminded that their answers are as much a matter of grace as they are individual human agency. Grace is a word that has been bandied about a lot. It was the keystone of President Obama's eulogy for the Reverend Clementa Pinckney, senior minister of Mother Emanuel Church. President Obama said, as a nation, out of this terrible tragedy, God has visited grace upon us, for he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. Grace is usually understood as a gift from God. As President Obama put it, according to the Christian tradition, grace is not earned, grace is not merited, it is not something we deserve. Rather, grace is the free and benevolent favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and bestowal of blessings. Unitarian Universalist minister Marilyn Sewell put it in slightly more humanistic terms when she preached, grace cannot be earned. It is not deserved. It is something freely given with no price attached. Grace for us as individuals shows up in the chance encounters that shift our lives. Grace is the soft rain, the aromatic flower, the glistening refracted sidewalk, the unexpected blue stone that prompts a subtle shift in perspective, a pronounced change in mood. Grace is that one time that you went to a party, even though you didn't feel like it, and met somebody only for an evening who reshaped your life. Grace is the smile of an infant that opens up the vistas of parenthood. Grace is those extraordinary moments when we respond to the universe around us and recognize that if we are not to perish together as fools, then everything must change. Grace for our society is different. It is the unanticipated and unforeseen events that open up the possibility of social transformation. It is Morris Brown leaving the white-controlled Methodist Church in Charleston, South Carolina to found the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, a denomination that has struggled for two centuries for racial justice. 
It is the transformation of the Civil War from a war to preserve the white man's union to a war to abolish slavery. It is the great senator of Mass from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, whose sit statue sits just outside our sanctuary, calling for reconstruction. He invoked the words of the Declaration of Independence and demanded, now the moment has come when these vows must be fulfilled to the letter. It is Rosa Parks sitting down and starting the Montgomery bus boycott. It is Stonewall. It is the transformation of the assassinations of Jimmy Lee Jackson, James Reed, and Viola Luisa into the Voting Rights Act. It is Bree Newsom scaling the flagpole outside of the South Carolina State House and tearing down the Confederate battle flag. There is a secret to this kind of grace, something about it that we often forget. It takes preparation. Now this might seem like a contradictory statement. If grace is, social grace is unanticipated and unseen, foreseen, how can we prepare for it? My answer, social grace brings about hoped for social change. The key word in this answer is hope. Hope is the belief that our human nature contains within it the possibility of change for the better. That no matter how drear or oppressive or cruel or unbearable the world is, things can get better. That we can, to invoke Martin King, make a way out of no way. Hope leads us to diligently prepare for moments where grace can erupt and seize upon them as soon as they do. A tragedy may occur, but it can be shifted to grace. Think about the events in Charleston, South Carolina over the last couple of weeks. There was a white supremacist act of terror that took the lives of nine people. Clementa Pinckney, Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, Tawanza Saunders, Daniel L. Simmons Sr., Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson were assassinated. They were not just killed anywhere. They did not die in a shopping mall, at a McDonald's, or in an elementary school. They were gunned down in Mother Emanuel Church, the founding congregation of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination. An act of terror transformed into a moment of grace. Why? Because the congregation had been hoping, struggling, working for that grace for almost 200 years. It had helped it emerge before. It was a symbol for hope, for grace, for the truth that black lives matter. And so because that tragedy took place within its sanctified walls, grace broke forth. Now, I said earlier that the text for today's sermon was, we should, must all learn to live together as brothers or we will perish together as fools. I should have apologized for the dated gender language. But more than that, I should admit that so far I've been talking a little bit like we may be able to live together as a human family. That the danger of perishing together as fools is not a grave threat. But it is. 
When I conceived of this sermon, my intention had been to preach about the difficulty of doing something about the climate crisis. I was going to admit to you that a couple years ago I made a resolution that I was going to devote an hour a week to doing something about climate change. It was a modest goal, one I thought I could easily accomplish. All it meant that I needed was that I needed to set aside 30 minutes twice a week. But I soon faltered. Why? Because I constantly got caught up in the crises of the moment. Climate change is a slow-burning issue. There's always something more pressing. Last summer, I had planned to do a series of sermons on religion and climate change. But then Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson. Violence and instability in Central America prompted a massive influx of immigrant children. And so I spent my time preaching about racial, not environmental, justice. I was going to talk with you about the constant horrors we inflict upon each other and how those get in the way of us doing what we need to survive as a species. I was going to talk with you about my own despair and my own hope. I was going to confess my paralysis and ineptitude. But grace got in the way. The events of the week reminded me of two things. First, any attempt at social change requires the social. My own futile attempts at committing to work on climate change failed because I attempted to engage in the work by myself. I didn't do it as part of a community. There was no one to encourage me or to hold me accountable. And second, something about the recent events caused me to remember that white supremacy does not just rest in symbols or in acts of violence. It is about the systematic exploitation of black and brown bodies to produce wealth, wealth held primarily by white men. I also recalled that the symbols of hate can change. The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s did not march with the flags of the Confederacy. They marched with the American flag. It was my rereading of W.E. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America that prompted this recollection. Du Bois's text is probably the greatest work of American history yet written. In it, he describes the formula for white supremacy. It is a system of racialized capitalism. The formula runs this. The exploitation of brown and black bodies plus the despoilation of natural resources of the planet equals the foundation of white wealth. Let me say that again. The exploitation of black and brown bodies plus the despoilation of the natural resources of the planet equals the foundation of white wealth. As Du Bois put it, the South built an oligarchy erected on cheap colored labor and raising raw material for manufacture. Rereading Du Bois in the midst of our national tragedy and national moment of grace helped me to listen to the words of President Obama's eulogy for Reverend Clementa Pinckney. As a nation, out of this terrible tragedy, God has visited grace upon us, for he has allowed us to see where we've been blind. 
It helped me to see that I had been blind to the links between the violence inflicted upon black and brown bodies and the violence inflicted upon the earth. Slavery exploited and destroyed black bodies. Slavery exploited and destroyed the natural resources of the South. If we are not going to perish together as fools, then everything must change. We have to move beyond racialized capitalism. And for that to change, we need to figure out how to prepare for grace so that we can seize upon it, seize upon the unforeseen and anticipated. And that is not something we can do alone. So I'm gonna take a little bit of a risk this morning. Before I conclude my sermon, I want to give you a moment to think about how you can prepare for grace. What is one thing you can do, simple or complicated, to pave the way for unforeseen and unanticipated transformation. After that moment, I invite you, if you are comfortable, to turn to someone sitting near you and share with them what you can do. It doesn't matter how simple or complicated it is. And it doesn't matter if you cannot think of anything. You can always listen. We have far more wisdom together than we do alone. It is only by sharing our wisdom that we can prepare for grace. I'm going to ring our singing bell three times. The first time I ring it, I invite you to sit in silence and think about how you can prepare for grace. The second time I ring it, I invite you, if you are comfortable, and only if you are comfortable, to find someone to share with. The third time will call us back together. And when I do, there will be an opportunity for a few of you, if the Spirit so moves you, to share. One thing I plan to do to help prepare the way for grace is to remember that white supremacy is a system of racialized capitalism. When I preach about ending racism, I will remember to link racism to the exploitation of the environment. When I preach about climate change, I will remember to link it to the exploitation of black and brown bodies. Is there anyone else who would like to share with us this morning? I want to commit to 
helping us as a congregation to continue our dialogue and our work together on anti-oppression and anti-racism and there are many opportunities for us to build on what we've done already and deepen this in the next year. I was struck by the grace that of the parishioners at the AME Church. Their reaction was to forgive the young man who killed those nine, their nine co-parishioners. And I think that talk about grace and, and the wonderful outcome, for me, it's always tr trying to remember that those that are opposed to the things I believe in are human beings too. And uh, that's a real struggle for me, but I, I'm gonna work on that. Hi, um, sometimes I feel overwhelmed by uh, the, all of the issues and all of the intersection of issues and one small thing that, that I do is that when issues come up that I feel like my voice might be needed on my favorites or on my speed dial on my phone, I have all my state representatives and, and my Congress people and, my, and the president and uh, the, uh, my senators and I just don't put it aside. I instantly make a call, and it's a small thing, but you know, it, at least the voices of um, you know of us who all believe in this way need to really be heard. I think we have time for about one more. Good morning. I'm Pepper, and I'm going to listen. I'm usually the person that has the first sentence out. Remind me what I said. <laughs> May the words we have spoken together help us prepare the way for grace. May some Sunday this pulpit be able to declaim about the grace that helped us to change everything that must change. Some Sunday may we celebrate from this pulpit an end to the exploitation of brown and black bodies and an end to the exploitation of the earth as we can celebrate the victory of gay marriage today. Amen, blessed be, and ashe.